You are listening to Adjective New Music's podcast, Lexical Tones. My name is Andrew Cody, and I am your guest host today. Narrative, evocative, and introspective. Dale Trumbor is a composer and writer based in Southern California whose music has been praised by the New York Times for its soaring melodies and beguiling harmonies. Her compositions have been performed in the United States and internationally by ensembles, including the American Contemporary Music Ensemble, the Los Angeles Master Chorale, Los Angeles Children's Chorus, Modesto Symphony, and Pasadena Symphony. Trumbor has written extensively about working through creative blocks, and her first book, Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life, was released just last year. You can learn more about Trumbor and her work at daletrumbor.com. Let's dive in and have our conversation with Dale. First of all, before we even launch into your compositions, I just want to ask how you're doing. <laughs> because uh, first of all, composers, we're usually isolated from other composers because we're working on our own thing and with our own musicians. And um, yeah, I know this pandemic is going on uh, and is still continuing and it's starting to pick back up. And you're out in California and uh, I'm on the East Coast, so we're, we're a little further away. But I just want to see how, how you're doing. Um, how are things going in terms of your writing world? How have you been um, kind of coping with, I'm sure, uh, some canceled performances and, and different engagements. And so, yeah, just w- what's been going on and, and how are you doing? Yeah, well, first of all, thanks for thanks for having me on the show. Um, and I've been doing okay. It's, uh, it's really up and down, I think, depending on the day or the week. Uh, and my normal coping strategies, which usually I have a set routine. Um, I have my daily at home routine, I have my travel routines, I have all of the practices I I use to keep myself functioning and productive and happy. (laughs) It's really hard. Those, I don't want to say those have all gone out the window because some of them are still keeping me sane and productive, relatively productive at least. But um, yeah, I think it's it's a hard time for everyone. And I certainly uh, have experienced, you know, cancellations of premieres. I think I have seven pieces currently in limbo waiting to be premiered that Mm. were supposed to be premiered this year, but haven't been. Um, Yeah, so it's been rough. But at the same time, uh, I've always found that composing sort of brings me back to myself and really does contribute to my mental health and well-being. Um, Even if it's just 10 minutes of composing a day, that makes a huge difference in how I function. Yeah. Um, So I've been trying to get back to that as often as possible. That's good. And yeah, and I think I heard on a previous interview um, that you gave um, that like back in March, you actually started composing pieces kind of um, maybe not just as out of response for this, but also as like a solution for this. Uh, Do you want to talk a little bit about uh, those works and kind of how those came about? Sure. And I honestly never thought that those pieces would have a life beyond August, maybe. I think this pandemic has gone on, well, way longer than it should, but also way longer than any of us anticipated. Um, I actually remember taking bets with some friends, like, how? what's the longest this could possibly last? And the, <laughs> the last possible guess was August. Um, but mm-hmm. back in March, um, I was seeing some choral, choral directors, uh, conductors, complaining that there was nothing they could do over Zoom. And so I wrote two pieces that sort of intentionally play with Zoom's strange lag and the choppiness, like cutting between different voices, where it's intentional that uh, 
everyone's going at their own pace. It's aleatoric. You get, uh, really you only ever get two, maybe three voices at the same time. So with a chorus singing over Zoom, it, it's cutting between different people. Um, mm-hmm. And I was interested in that and um, actually went back and made one section of one of those pieces, uh, a solo where everyone else mutes themselves and is humming or ooing along with the soloist. So really mm-hmm. the music in the in those two pieces, it's for for the performers and not for any audience. They could be done with an audience, they could be done as a recording, but it was just a way to get people making music live together in some form again. Wow, that's awesome. And that's so encouraging because you're right. Uh, you know, oftentimes, especially as we're training for performances, right? We're, we're preparing music for other people, but to actually have the performance be something more, um, you know, uh, internal uh, is, is, is pretty amazing. So that's cool. That's, that's really neat. And I wonder, yeah, pedagogically how this will impact, um, you know, especially with, with choral singing in the future, you know, there's technically a little bit of a latency that happens with, with some choral singing, right? It's, they hear what's going on around them and then it's a split second later they enter back in. Um, this is like real world latency with, with people being all over the place. And so, um, that's great. And what a, what a cool way to, to tackle that challenge. And I do want to come back to, um, talking about um, that kind of connectivity in a little bit um, when we look at one of your choral works. But I wanted to start actually by talking about a, a solo work that you did um, for voice uh, called uh, What po- Only Poetry Can Do. Um, and this is for voice and piano. Um, and it's a gorgeous, gorgeous work. And uh, I saw the text is written by two um, living poets, um, Barbara Crooker, I believe, and Julie uh, Kane. So um, how did you, and this will relate to a bigger question about how you um, uh, find texts and select text, because you've set such a large number of works um, regard, that use text. Um, but I wanted to know specifically, how, how do you know these two poets, or is it something that you've, you've stumbled upon their, their poetry and how you, you found these? Uh, texts. So this is actually a great example of how I found, I think, three or f- or maybe up to five of the poets that I still work with today. Um, w- it all comes back to Julie Kane is my aunt and my godmother. Uh, and Very so cool. I grew up, yeah, I grew up um, with a poet in the family who uh, she lives in Louisiana. She's very successful um, and was the poet laureate of Louisiana a few, maybe five years ago, I think. Wow. Um, and so through Julie, I actually, um, I, at one point, I put out a call for poems and for poets, uh, for retellings of fairy tales uh, for a song cycle I was doing called Snow White Turns 60 and got lots of responses. And Barbara was one of the poets who responded to that call. And actually through Barbara, then I've ended up working with um, another another poet, Laura Foley, who saw that I was studying Barbara's work and sent in poetry for me to consider because she saw that I was working with Barbara. So it's just like composers know other composers, poets know other poets. And just by having one connection, I've I've used that to find so many other Poets, and then now too, uh, I end up uh, I, I end up sometimes seeking out or soliciting work, or or just finding a poem in a journal or online and reaching out blindly to the poet as well. So that's certainly something we could talk more about if you want. But. Yeah, I would love to because I know a lot of composers who who are writing for voice. They they come up into the the challenge number one of they may love uh you know a living poet 
poet's work, but um, there is no connection there, and there's worry about copyright and all that sort of stuff. Or they use, um, you know, something that's in the public domain, but there's too many thous and old English and or, or a language they don't understand. So yeah, so I'd love it if you could elaborate a little bit more on how you've built your um, poet ne- network um, and also just how you've gone about um, soliciting uh, poems that uh, you've then turned into um, musical works. Yeah, so what I recommend, especially when people are still in school, just to email the English department and uh, you can you can easily put out a request for poems and find poets that way. And then once you once really once you've worked with one living poet, it's easy to ask them for recommendations for other people that they know. It's always easier to get permission from a person rather than a company. Um, so if you can re- directly reach out to the poet through their website or through social media, that's always going to be an easier way in. Um, I've been I've actually been reading more literary journals than usual because I've been writing short stories, which is a, a big tangent. Um, but uh, I think that would be a great way. That's not how I found poems originally. But if you're just looking for new poets and poems where the copyright definitely belongs to the poet, where you, you don't have to go through their publisher, um, subscribing to a literary journal, or just looking online for poems that way uh, can be a great way to find poets. Um, and then, yeah, for me, it's once I've, once I've worked with the poet once, it's easy to send an email to them and ask and say, I have a specific commission about America or the springtime or whatever, joy, celebration, um, all of these, there are certain themes that I think pop up in choral music in particular, mm-hmm. again and again, or like the ocean, darkness, light. Yeah. Um, I actually, some, I, I don't know, I, I like to complain about choral concerts that mash all of those together like it's one theme, like darkness, <laughs> light, springtime. Like, like this yeah. is, no, this is. The senses by, you know, choir. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm with you. <laughs> Exactly, but um, once you have once you have worked with several poets once, it's really easy to send them an email and just say, "This is a theme coming up in my work. Can you send me anything you have that is relevant to that theme?" So, I think for this, for what what only poetry can do for the song cycle, I was just I think I was just internally collecting poems by Barbara that I that I had read because I keep up with her. I, I subscribe to her newsletter and everything. Um, but I could just as easily have emailed Barbara and 10 other poets and said, I'm writing a song cycle about writing. Uh, send me anything you have that's relevant to the issues we face when we write words um, or what you think about when you write poetry, poems about poetry. Mm, that's great. So I have, I have two more questions related to this before we get to listen to this piece. So um, the first of which, so you, you mentioned how, how you gather poems, which is fantastic. And um, if I read your bio correctly, which I think I did, um, you also have an English degree. So you've got a pretty discerning eye when it comes to selecting text. Um, because, you know, uh, especially like music, like there's a lot out there. In poetry, there's a lot out there. What do you use to help discern um, a text that's going to work for a piece of music that you're trying to set. And I know there's probably lots of different scenarios call for different things, but what, what is uh, maybe a couple of the things that are essential that you look for? So I'm looking in general for um, imagery that I think I can light up with music. 
uh, moments where I can really dive into text painting, maybe not, not only in a, the most literal or basic sense, but trying to capture the mood of a piece um, and the atmosphere of it in music, where I think I can contribute something to the text. And there's uh, sort of abstract, but there's a spaciousness to the text. There's room for music to uh, bring it to life or, or contribute even more colors to the text. And I'm looking for sentences that are not terribly long because when uh, just necessarily when you set words to music, they, they stretch, right? Music tends to stretch out words. And so it's actually harder. This is actually an interesting, um, an interesting example of this in this song cycle. There's a, I think, 12 second long movement <laughs> called rejection slip. And I often say, I like to uh, mention how Stephen Sondheim, I, I always, I need to memorize the exact quote, but he, he writes, uh, he's described multiple times how it's harder to set funny poetry to music because music slows down the pacing. And if we're telling a joke, it's all about the pacing, right? Mm -hmm. That's where humor comes from. It's totally it comes, a lot of it comes from timing and delivery. So I'm, if something has a very long sentence, like right now I'm, I'm giving a very long-winded answer, you tend to lose the train of thought um, <laughs> at the end. When you're hearing something sung, you tend to lose the beginning of a sentence by the time you reach the end of it, if it's a very long, complicated, twisty sentence. So I do gravitate, I think, in my own work towards uh, poetry with it, it not maybe not necessarily shorter sentences, but phrases where... Um, I can set those to music and the listener will still remember by the end of the phrase what the whole, they'll be able to take in the words in real time. Mm -hmm. Because I, I really, in my own work, I really want the listener to be able to hear the words. Yeah. And that's not always possible. And that's definitely not true of all choral and vocal music. Um, I've had so many audience members be like, I can't tell what they're, what they're saying. Um, which is a common problem, but I try to do everything I can to make sure you can tell what is being sung. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's, that's really wonderful. And, and I think, um, you know, the other thing that's tough about setting text, which I'm wondering, uh, if you agree with as well is, but, but it's certain words, just like you said, in comedy timing, right there, the, the pacing is what's key, but certain words and certain texts have such a natural rhythm to them that, they need to kind of progress in a certain way in order for the human language uh, to be understood. Um, so yeah, um, I guess uh, what I wanted to ask finally with this is kind of connecting, I don't want to make this a whole COVID theme podcast, but I guess it's, it's kind of the circumstance we're in right now. Um, but I love the, the text from the fourth movement of, of this, um, and I'd like to read it uh, just for our listeners as well, um, though they'll be able to hear it shortly. Um, you know, since it's set, set so well, but uh, it's it's about the idea of, of stopping, right, in the hurried life, which quite literally the, the pandemic did. So it says, um, make us stop uh, in our harried, multitasking, modern or postmodern lives away from ambient light of, uh, sorry, away from the ambient light of electricity and all that follows and look up into the great glass eye of night gazing in dumbstruck wonder at the coded messages of the stars. That's so stunning um, and so uh, beautifully set that we're going to listen to momentarily. So I guess um, kind of in response to 
what that text is as well as to kind of the circumstance that we're in. Um, you had mentioned that you've, you've kind of started creating some new uh, rhythms, some new routines uh, in creating that space um, uh, in your life for composition. I guess for our composers who maybe now have a different kind of hurried life. I know for me, I have, I have two small children at home. And so trying to find time to write while they're asleep, I'm either fatigued or during the day, there's just too much kind of chaos. Um, I'd just be curious to know how you carved out um, space to write now, knowing that maybe there isn't a deadline that's a motivator or um, there isn't, you know, something that's, that's pressing that you have to squeeze in creativity into a, a certain um, time frame. Yeah, so I'm actually, I'm, I'm struggling with this right now because I work so well with deadlines and I have two deadlines. Um, so as we're speaking, it's mid-November, um, but I have two deadlines in early January and those are the pieces I'm writing now. And deadlines have always motivated me to get things done and I love them. I'm often early with pieces. I'm trying to fight the uh, stereotype that composers are always late with pieces by turning things in early. Um, but I'm also working on a piece for solo piano for, for myself, um, just for me, a piece that I've wanted to write for a really long time. And now I have, I have the time, uh, which is, I, I guess I, I always thought I'd write it at a residency or something. And I've been saying that for five years, like, oh, I'll write this piece when I have the time. And usually I don't have the time. So now the challenge is just getting myself to the piano to do it. And what I've actually found helpful in the last couple of weeks, especially uh, with this one piece in particular, is just playing through the, the music that I love to play at the piano, like a lot of Chopin, sometimes Tori Amos, uh, and um, using that, using like actually making music that I love listening to and playing um, as a way to break the ice of that barrier that sometimes keeps us from sitting down and doing the work. Because then I'm already at the piano. It's sort of like a warm-up, right? I know some people sit down and they play, they like to play Bach as a, like a mental and physical, I guess, for your fingers as mm -hmm. a warm-up yeah. before they compose. Um, but for me, it's more about playing, I, I, because this is a piano piece, playing piano pieces that I have played that are already in my fingers that are really familiar and that are sort of effortless in a way. And then that, again, that breaks the ice towards composing new music. And really just in, in COVID times, um, for me, productivity has been all about asking what feels pleasurable or easy or both. Um, trying to let myself do what I want to do. And it's hard. I'm very type A. I'm very, like, I, I for a long time, I've defined my self-worth by my productivity, which is not super healthy. Um, it's good if you want to get a lot of things done, but it's not great for uh, having a strong, independent sense of self-worth aside from your work. So I've been trying to sort of break out of that and just ask, like, what do I want to do right now? Mm. And what, what does it look like if I do it? I should say it probably helps that I don't have small children. I don't have kids, <laughs> at least not yet. Um, I have cats and they take up much, much less time. Yes, but, but still time. Yes. That's for sure. But, but because I have this time, I've just, I've been trying to actually break some of the, um, maybe some of the less helpful habits in my life. Um, 
pressure that I have to be doing things all the time that are productive and, you know, just asking like, well, what does it look like if I, if I write what I want to write, if I sit down and read and like let myself actually relax because I don't have to be jumping on a plane every other week. <laughs> That's great. Well, I hope that um, this work, which, uh, you know, I made you uh, give us our, our, the three adjectives, um, which this one I would tie in with, with narrative and that idea. And I, you take in the perspective of what, of what it's like to be a writer. So I'm really excited for everybody to listen to this piece if you haven't already heard it. Um, so this is What Only Poetry Can Do.
Hi everyone, it's Jamie Lee Sampson again with a brief message from our podcast sponsor. Are you interested in viewing, attending, or listening to events featuring music written by members of the Adjective Composers Collective? If so, check out the events page on our website at adjectivenewmusic.com for a listing of concerts and happenings near you. That's adjectivenewmusic.com backslash events. Before we return to this week's episode, here's a brief interlude featuring the music of Garrett Schumann performed by pianist Andrew Schneider. Feel free to sit back and enjoy this excerpt of Garrett Schumann's Four Little Pieces. And now, let's continue this week's episode of Lexical Tomes. Um, so the next work I wanted to uh, talk about of yours um, is the work Perhaps, um, which I would assign uh, maybe the evocative um, descriptor uh, that you've given us, the uh, adjective. Um, and this is a, a wonderful choral piece. I mean, it's just absolutely stunning. I, I love the, the harmonic progression. Um, and the text is really interesting because the text was not originally supposed to be a text that was set um, for music, but rather it was a descriptor of a previous piece. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? And I believe this was written by uh, Brandon Elliott, right? It was, it was the, the author of this text. So tell us a little bit about where the text comes from. Yeah, so Brandon is, is actually the author of this text and then also the conductor of the choir who is premiering this piece and performing it in, in this recording. Um, so I, I think it was their April, I think they had a springtime themed, again, getting back to choral, choral programming themes, um, but sort of a spring themed concert. And Brandon had written a, this program note and I was sitting there in the audience and I'd worked with Choral Arts Initiative. Um, I wrote a piece called I Am Music for them. I wrote a half hour long uh, secular requiem for them. And then they recorded it on an album. So we had a, a an established professional relationship, right? And I was sitting in the audience reading this program note and just thinking like, this is exactly like the kind of text that I look for in my music and that and that Brandon, I think, lo would look for uh, when he's programming. I think if he hadn't written this accidental poem and it wasn't formatted as a poem, it was, it was just, you know, a, a program note. It was just a paragraph in his description of what listeners were about to hear in this concert. But I read it and I was like, I need to set this to music. And then I did what I never do, which is I did not ask permission to set this poem. <clears throat> I just, I just did it. Just did it. Um, That's great. I just, I just did it. But then I gave it to Brandon as a gift and said, you know, like as a thank you, as a way to celebrate their fifth season. Um, and as a thank you for all of the many collaborations we'd had already. But mm -hmm. I was so, I was so nervous. I was like, what if he doesn't, if he doesn't <laughs> like it or... <laughs> Just, just re-gifts it. I'll give this yeah. somebody else. No, He's that's like, how, how dare you set my <laughs> words? You can't, 
you, no one no one can ever perform this. Um, yeah. But luckily, he he liked it, and he did end up uh, performing it with wow. Coral Arts Initiative. And that's wonderful. And what a, what a cool and organic way to come across uh, text and to, to create music from that. And I think, and, and I'd be curious to ask if you've done something like this before, because I think the tendency is like, okay, well, I'm going to write a piece for voice and, or I'm going to write a choral piece. I need to start with poetry. But in actuality, you don't need just poetry. I mean, you could set anything, right? Um, so I'd be curious, do you have any other examples where you've done something like that or uh, other ways where maybe you've looked... Um, you know, under the couch cushions for for text or, or you know somewhere that's a little less traditional. Yeah, so I've I've set prose to music before, um, and I've also set a Facebook or two Facebook posts in one piece merged into one poem, and also a, a Twitter um, an autocomplete exercise. Or I don't know what to call it like a an autocomplete challenge. Is that, that like when is, like you you wait for the next word to appear? Yeah, predictive text mm-hmm. prompt um, that actually a singer, Jeannie Hussain, in in Choral Arts Initiative, um, who I knew through all those uh, projects I was just talking about, she tweeted this uh, predictive text poem, uh, mm-hmm. again, sort of an accidental poem or a found poem, and I really wanted to set that, and so, and so I got her permission, and I did, and then... Um, uh, a colleague for or a, uh, an acquaintance from college who I used to occasionally accompany at her voice lessons, Maya Jackson, mm-hmm. uh, had made a Facebook post about or two fa- two different Facebook posts about the deaths of um, Alton Sterling and Philando Castile, uh, sort of at not at the start of I was going to say at the start at the start of police brutality, but police brutality has been going mm-hmm. on for entirely too long and when I when I asked her permission to set those those Facebook posts I didn't anticipate that this would still be going the kind of racial yeah injustice and brutal murders mm-hmm. um, would still be happening but anyway that was a different a different moment where I read these Facebook posts and she was calling Maya was calling for uh, for us to stay in pain and to use that pain. And I'd never seen that worded before in that Mm. way. Um, Not a call to heal or a call um, to overcome grief, but a call to stay in that grief and that mourning and ask what it's it's asking of us Mm. um, and move from a place of that pain and that anger. And I just thought that was brilliant. And I, I'm actually working with uh, with Maya Jackson on another uh, a new piece for Virtual Choir that'll be premiered in December. But but yes, all of that is to say, uh, Twitter tweet and Facebook posts and um, uh, I don't know prose. Yeah, prose can also be like all of that. I think you can find text anywhere, but you do want permission. You don't want to do what I did with Brandon's text for perhaps. <laughs> that's you true. always want permission first. Yeah. Well, I yes. think that's such helpful advice, especially for, for other composers who are, who are, who are looking because, you know, you, you can, you can look around anywhere and, and find text and it's just about 
um, applying it um, to like the cultural moment that you just referenced, you know, and everything in between. So that's really, really helpful and really encouraging. And I think, yeah, pointing out those examples, both in like extreme serious circumstances, but also in lighthearted um, circumstances, it's great to be able to to find that in so many different locations. So, so cool that you, you went ahead and, and you had done that. Um, and I was curious about it because it's it sounded like you read that text and you were like, okay, um, you know, Brandon killed it with this. I'm going to go write, write this. Um, when you have a text like that, is it something where you can sit down and um, you can sketch out basically the whole piece really quickly? Or is it something like, I'll write the first three minutes or minute or two, and then I'll go get some coffee and come back and reapproach it? Like, how, how do you um, typically set a, a, a text like this? And, and maybe how much time does it usually take you typically? So this is, I guess, in many ways, this this piece is actually doing things that I often encourage composers not to do in choral writing. We have the permission issue, of course. And then this piece is mostly homophonic. Uh, and normally in my choral works, I'm all about um, polyphony, playing with different textures, playing with neutral, neutral syllables, vowel sounds, um, in order to create different textures and not have this very straightforward um, homophony in a piece. But this piece, it's interesting that you asked about this one because I did, I wrote this very quickly. I think I wrote, I was at an artist residency and this was the only complete piece to come out of that month-long residency. And I wrote it so quickly that I felt extra awful that I hadn't been more productive there because I don't know how long, I think the draft of this took a couple days. But also I was at a residency, so all I was doing was composing and reading novels and going on long walks, which is like my favorite way to live. Mm -hmm. Although there's no cats and my husband is <laughs> not there. So yeah, true. <laughs> not my favorite. <laughs> yes. Truly, but yes. But mm -hmm. anyway, um, for this piece in particular, I wrote, I think I, I wrote the melody first mm -hmm. very, very, very quickly. And then I added in the harmonies and I think... Some of the harmonies were present as I was writing it, but um, but yeah, this was this was a rare instance of. Mm -hmm. Sometimes it, it can take much longer, especially if you know there are multiple other accompanying instruments along with a chorus, or if it's a more complicated piece. But this this piece is one of the simpler, um, in terms of the rhythms, at least it's and the textures. It's it's simpler. For the sure. harmonies are still. I think a little bit challenging for some choirs to sing, but yeah. But the interesting thing, so uh, because you know earlier when we 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 talked, you you mentioned that it's really important for people to understand the words, and and certainly by having an, a homophonic texture, people are able to understand the words a lot more clearly. Um, so I know this is kind of a, a quick little sidebar, but with dealing with you know moving lines and polyphony and all that sort of stuff, um, how do you how do you balance that out? The clarity of the text coming through, other than just you know hammering on your choirs to have good diction, but rather uh, how, how do you think about your writing in that way to make sure that, okay, if I'm going to have a more complex, you know, polyphonic moment, how, how, how am I still going to allow the, the text to come through and be clearly understood? So I think a lot about uh, the composite sound. I'm, I'm trying to think not vertically, but horizontally in terms of cutoffs and consonants. Mm. So if there are multiple voices happening, um, if there's an S sound or a T at the end of a word, if you're holding out that word and other people are singing other things and they get to the end of their word, which is different, and then everyone cuts off, you're going to hear the T or the, the K 
or k sound, right? Or the mm-hmm. s. S's yeah. will cut through anything. Oh, yeah. So you'll end up with a word that's plural that you didn't want plural. You could end up with a completely different word um, based on the composite text. That mm-hmm. When you're taking everything into account. Uh, yeah. For, I, I think I mixed it up when I said it before. I'm thinking vertically, not horizontally. Maybe yeah, I said yeah. it right. Maybe yeah, I said no, it wrong. When the, yeah. yeah, when things eventually yeah, line back up. Um, okay, cool. I'm making lots of gestures with my hands, which, of course, yeah. are not helpful. <laughs> it's good It's good choral, It's choral, good choral conducting thing. Um, and this is actually, sorry, zooming back out, too. Um, I just wanted, because you, you mentioned you're a keyboardist. Uh, how did you first start writing for uh, the choral environment, and what gravitated you towards writing for voices? So I, my mom's always sung in choirs. I have always sung in choirs since I was about seven or so, which is also when I started taking piano lessons. Um, and I, I grew up loving musical theater, not performing in it. I was more of a pit orchestra mm-hmm. kind of person than a, a put me up on stage. I'm, I'm not not great on stage, um, but I. Like I was singing a lot. I grew up around a lot of singing, a lot of recordings of singing, um, not necessarily classical, but it just was always part of my life, I think. And I started, I think I started actually writing for chorus when I was about 12 or so. Okay. Um, but I'd already been in choirs, like I, I was in church choirs when I was younger and and all the choirs at school, all the way through, all the way through grad school and, and post-grad school for a few years too. I miss being in a choir right now. Um, mm-hmm. Normally I'm traveling so much, I, I use that as an excuse for like, well, I'd be missing half the rehearsals, but I still, I should just get my act together. And mm-hmm. when, when COVID is over, I should really just join a choir again. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's interesting. You mentioned, uh, you know, you're preparing a piece for a virtual choir uh, right now, which seems to be the the thing um, that a lot of at least choirs are are dealing with. Um, I was a choir director before my, my current teaching position, and um, yeah, it was once March hit, it was okay. Now learn how to to edit these things in Final Cut, and you know, get all get a, get all your choristers, you know, involved in doing this and getting them to set up, you know, their their headphones correctly, and yada yada yada. Um, I guess one of the biggest things is is uh, though it's 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 a substitute for you know singing together in a rehearsal hall and, and nothing real really replaced that um, and you know the more we did these virtual choir pieces our participation kind of kind of dipped um, are you at all what's what when we can eventually start singing together which I think we're still a, a good ways away from that even though we can still kind of do it in you know, we can we can be on like a I don't know an airplane hangar and all be on different spots or parking garage. There's a lot of, especially in California, a lot of parking garage yeah, happening and, right now and, and masks, masks and, and yeah. all that sort of stuff. So it, it's it's a little different. Um, I guess uh, I, I'm sorry. This is kind of a longer question, but um, I guess when we can get back to that, what what are you? What is the thing that that you you miss the most about uh, being around a choir or participating in a choir? Um, or, uh, you know, writing for a live choir, what, what's the thing that you're most looking forward to having that community be back together? I think it's, well, I think it's two things. I think as a composer, as a composer working with live choirs, I miss the moments of the unexpected where the conductor and or the singers have made a choice that I didn't anticipate when I wrote the piece, but that I actually, that surprises me in the best possible way where I'm if it's a premiere where I sometimes end up re- 
writing that into that, into the piece, into the score, mm. where they're taking, they're slowing down somewhere, they're taking a moment, um, or they're, they're adjusting the tempo or the dynamic slightly, or they ask me if they can try something. I, I love that. I love that moment. Um, I think when I give a piece to a choir for a premiere or, or to any ensemble for a premiere, because I don't, I, I catch myself talking like I only write choral music sometimes. That's not true. I write for orchestras sometimes, or write for, but I write a lot of music for choir. And I love those moments when I hand over a piece and it feels like the piece isn't done if it's if it's clay it's not done drying yet right it hasn't taken its solid form we can still mold it Mm -hmm. together into what will be its final shape and to some extent every performance does that right if the piece can change slightly in its interpretation uh, for for years for decades yeah um but then also i i was talking to so the ensemble that i'm writing this or have written this virtual choir piece that hasn't premiered yet uh, but will premiere in december that, that ensemble is the Orange County Women's Chorus, who were actually my first, my very first ever commission, my first ever paid commission. So I'm very grateful to them for lots of reasons. Um, but they were having a talk over Zoom last night and talking about virtual choirs. And one of the choir members commented uh, in the chat, she said, no goosebumps. And I was just like, that's that's it. Like, that's that's what we miss. You don't get goosebumps if you're... Recording by yourself in your room, and yeah, and it is, it's that, it's that moment where something about the acoustics ringing in the air in real time about, I think when you're singing too, or when you're, when you're playing in an ensemble next to someone, it's about that very real, very human interaction, and then it's about the, what the music is doing in the air, and the fact that people are there listening and you you're feeding off of their responses and it's this sort of reciprocal gift that you're giving. I just not to get too cheesy about it, but that's, I mean, that's what I miss. Mm. I think that's what we, we all miss. That's why we get into music in the first place is that, that moment. Absolutely. But well, speak- I guess, yeah. Yeah. I was just going to uh, say, just, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, sp- speaking of goosebumps, I was going to segue us right into this uh, next recording, which is a, mm-hmm. such a stunning recording and a wonderful performance of uh, your work, perhaps.
All right. So before we uh, move on to the, the the other piece that we have uh, to listen to today, I would love to talk quickly about uh, your book that you uh, published, I believe, uh, a little under a year ago or maybe a little over a year ago, um, Staying Composed, Overcoming Anxiety and Self-Doubt Within a Creative Life. And um, I love the title of this because though you are a composer um, and you are a writer, um, you do a lot of things, um, it seems like this book is not just aimed at composers, but it's aimed at creatives and specifically um, overcoming anxiety and self-doubt. So I just wanted to say um, or and ask you, um, because this is something I've dealt with um, and I think a lot of composers deal with, especially the, the self-doubt um, w- with the YouTube comment world that we live in and um, honestly just... All, even the way some of our music teachers have kind of set us up to be, we need to have some sort of criticism or uh, something that we need to work on, right? You know, in music lessons, there's always something you have to walk away with. Because if you know the music teacher is just like, great, you did it, you know, then we'd be done at that point. Um, so I'd love to ask you, first of all, where... Um, not, I was going to say, where did you find the time to do this with all the music writing that you're doing, which is great. Um, no, but um, where... Um, where you, you finally said, okay, you know what, I need to write this book, um, and why you decided to write that, and um, kind of what your process was like um, writing this, and also I'm assuming that you have dealt with and have, um, just from your other writings, you know, f- faced anxiety and some of these questions. Um, so yeah, so kind of big question, but would love for you to just kind of speak about your book and, uh, yeah, those points I just made. Yeah, so I, I mentioned in the book that I thought, I for a long time I thought, oh, I'll write a book about composing and being a composer, and it'll cover anxiety and the money side of things, the business side of things, and networking, and and composing, and like this, just this impossible, if I wrote that, if anyone wrote it, it would be like 700 pages or something, or a thousand pages, that's like five, four or five different books. So... I've been keeping, I I still am keeping um, several different files just in various places of books that I want to write at some point during my life, whenever that is. But this one, um, I think after maybe three or so years of these very sketchy little thoughts about, like, should I write an essay about this? Um, I, I was looking at those, realizing that I really... Part of the information that I wish I had when I was 20, 22, 24, like young and knowing what sort of what I wanted to do, uh, knowing I wanted to make a living as a full-time composer, which I'm now doing, but it took this long to get here. Um, I, I just, I wanted to know how you, <laughs> just how you get through it, like how you deal with all of the uncertainty um, I think that's the biggest issue, at least for me, that's what I have the most trouble with. And then there's, of course, there's so many different facets of um, just sitting down to write, like overcoming procrastination, um, overcoming the feeling that everything you've done is garbage. There's there's so many little elements to dig into that I, I hope I have dug into in this book, um, that I hope I've done justice in describing my coping strategies that I've been developing since, I mean, since I was seven, but especially in the, mm-hmm. uh, I think it's been not, when did I, yeah, I graduated in 2011 with my master's degree. So it's been nine years, but especially in those nine years of 
being a freelance musician and having to overcome my own, like the own worst elements of my anxiety and, and self-doubt, which I think we all have. I think we all have some struggles with that, um, whether they're, you know, whether that's something that you, you go to therapy for, you try medication for, or if it's just something where you, on a day-to-day basis, are struggling to get work done. I think mm. we've all dealt with that. Um, and it, like you said, it's certainly not limited to composers. I think any creative person or really just any person, um, hopefully would get something out of this book, uh, because we have all dealt with these issues. But, um, in terms of writing the book, I think I spent about a year knowing that I was, that I was writing a book actively, not just taking these sketchy little notes in various places. Mm -hmm. I collected them all. I, um, made an outline for myself that shifted a little bit in the process, but I knew that I wanted to take the readers from sort of smaller day-to-day issues to broader, um, wider reaching issues. Like what happens when you finally are finding success with your work and you're still feeling self-critical, you're still feeling doubtful of your abilities. You're still, you're not as happy as you thought you would be. Um, so the book, the book goes, I've been saying it goes from micro to macro. It also goes from sort of day-to-day things to wide-reaching issues, or maybe even it goes from what you deal with at the start of your career to maybe some issues you deal with as as a mid-career um, mm-hmm. artist. For sure, yeah. And it sounds like, um, you know, the different pressures and the different anxieties and the different things uh, that... that end up challenging you as you're mentioning it, it moves you know as your career progresses it progresses those ang- underlying anxieties might be the same but like they 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 come in different ways like if the yes. first thing is how am i going to get my first performance and then later on it's midway through like how am i going to you know actually be proud enough of one of these performances that i can put it out as like a commercial recording and then how can I distribute that commercial recording? And then how can I turn that commercial recording into, you know, like the chain goes on and on and, and on like that. I guess um, it, it, selfishly speaking now for some of my composition students who are maybe at the undergraduate level um, and are at that point where they're kind of starting to embark that maybe they've had their friends play some pieces and they're starting to um, have, have, have a performance or two. Um, and they have time currently um or like they're about to go on break and so they'll have a little bit more time um, that they could do this. Um, what would you say would be like three really good um, strategies for uh, a composer at that maybe moment in their uh, career trajectory um, that would help them um, feel like they can create and uh, have the confidence to create while still balancing uh, time management and um, you know the, the, the nerves of coming with just really starting to show people their music? So I think... Uh, one thing for me that I describe in the book, and that's really helped, especially during the pandemic, is the idea of keeping in touch with my work. And I mean that literally. So I'm uh, I'm opening my computer. I'm opening my Sibelius file um, to, or I'm sitting down at the piano and playing through what I have. Maybe I'm deleting one measure that's not working. Maybe I just play through it. Maybe I just sing through what I have. Maybe I hit play on Sibelius and I listen to it, but I'm doing something on a daily or near daily basis to stay connected to that work. Mm. Uh, and 
that keeps it fresh in my mind that I think the biggest effect of that, even though it, it might feel, that might take five minutes, it might feel like I've, I haven't done anything with that piece, but that it keeps that piece spinning in my mind. And um, I guess this, I don't know if this counts as the same <laughs> number one or number two for the pieces of advice, but I've learned um, you can cultivate that that unconscious, um, at least for me, this is this happens a lot. I'll be working on a piece, and it's when I step away from it that the piece continues churning in my mind mm. and breaks through to to the next measure, to what comes to the next section, to a broader idea for the shape of that the piece will take. Um, but you can cultivate those moments by keeping in touch with your work, and then consciously going and doing something else, especially when you're feeling frustrated doing something like taking a shower, going for a long walk, going on a drive, um, those activities where your your body is doing something and your brain is free to just wander. Hmm. Um, that's Sometimes it feels like those moments are accidental, but I don't, I don't think, I guess we can't predict when those thoughts will happen, but we can definitely create the scenarios that will encourage that kind of more meditative, um, those epiphanies, I guess. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a big fan of, of going on walks too, just in general. Um, yeah, it sounds like just create, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's doing something in space rather than just trying, like, you're right. Sometimes people are like, I need, I need space. I need to create space in order to do it. Uh, but then sometimes it's like when you have space, what, what is a way that you can, yeah, I don't know. Like folding laundry is my my <laughs> weird space. Like where, I don't know. Like uh, I'm just trying to think of like times when I I've I've been yeah working through that. That's that's really really helpful. Um, that's wonderful. So guess, um oh wait yeah go ahead no yeah 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 your third this, thing yes. I don't know if this uh if this is relevant to the creative or to having time and uh, but anyway the advice I would say to myself as an undergrad and and to anyone else um about jealousy, about um, or feeling inadequate or looking at your peers and seeing what they're doing and feeling unsuccessful or any sort of negative emotions around that. Mm -hmm. um, in the book, I, I talk about so often when I'm driving, this is kind of a, maybe a silly analogy, but when I'm driving, I'll notice a car, like you'll see the cars that are trying to get ahead. Like they're zooming around people or you're on a freeway or a highway and you see the people trying to go as fast as they possibly can where they're going. And then you end up at the same exit, the same traffic light, and you're next to that car. Or it's like two cars ahead of you. And you really, like, you're just doing your thing. You're going at the pace you want to go. They are trying so hard to go where they're going. Mm -hmm. And then so often... You end up in the same place, or then they have a completely different destination than you, and it doesn't matter. It just, it truly does not matter where that other person is going. Um, I tell myself this so often. Whenever I see someone else has, if I've applied for something and someone else has gotten that award or uh, or a commission or some big something, a big grant, a big residency. Mm -hmm that person is probably going to end up in a different spot in their life. They're, they're definitely, I mean, they're not me. So of course they're going to end up somewhere different than me and, and where mm -hmm. I'm going, where my destination is. And only I know what that destination is. And it's helpful to remind myself of my goals. Mm -hmm. And and so often the thing I'm 
applying for and didn't get, that doesn't even have to do with my goals. Maybe it would have put me there quicker, but it's not necessary. It's not, that one thing wouldn't have made a difference anyway. And so it, I just find it very, very helpful to think I am like, I am on my own path and I'm going where no one else is going because mm -hmm. only I can go there. That's really, really helpful. And I think, yeah, it's, it's so tempting, especially because I mean, not to go on a big rant about it, but yeah, like when you think about, you know, school bands and districts and, you know, we've, we've, we've made so much of, um, how young musicians come up, uh, they're, they're used to having it be a competition and even parents like who are yes. so used to work, watching the voice or the sing off and it's okay, well, but who's better, you know? And it's so easy for us to then, you know, not have our blinders on and be thinking about what, what's going on around us. Uh, and rather we need to focus in, um, on what we're doing. Um, I'm curious just because I, in this conversation from you, am so unbelievably motivated to go right because I just enjoy what your, your craft is. I enjoy your music and I enjoy just talking with you and talking with another creative person uh, who's doing that. I'm just curious if, um, in your writing is all, or, or, or if you've come across in your career that you've been finding yourself motivated by just even having conversations with other composers or if there are other composers that um, you look to to kind of, I don't know, tap into their, their motivation or, or you can motivate each other. Yeah, so I've actually, when people ask who, like who inspires you or what composers are you influenced by or inspired by, I've been shifting how I answer that question to say exactly what I'm about to say to you, which is part of the reason that I stayed in the Los Angeles area after grad school was because I found just a wealth of people here who are like a, really amazing human beings and amazing musicians, amazing composers, and I'm friends with them and I get to have this sort of conversation with them pretty much whenever I want, I guess less, less so again in COVID times, but um, mm -hmm. people like Rena Esmail, Julia Adolf, um, Sondra Choi, Thomas Kotcheff, these composers who I love their music and I love the conversations we have. Um, and with, with Rena and Julia in particular, we can talk about if I know if I have any sort of self-doubt moment like i can i can talk to them about it i can mm -hmm. be open and honest and vulnerable in describing that and and they will come right back at me with like oh yeah i felt that way this time and this is what i did to get through it um even having written a book about anxiety and self-doubt of course that doesn't it's not like <laughs> writing a book erases it from your life it's, <laughs> it's that true. book is it's all about the coping strategies it's like um mm -hmm. it's like meditating which is something i talk about in the book even if you don't meditate, I think you understand or exercise, you, you don't do it once and then you're done. Like mm -hmm. you're perfect that no, you have to do it. You have to keep returning to those strategies. You have to exercise multiple times a week or, or meditate multiple times. Like if you want the effects of that, you have to do it over and over again. So I have to keep doing the strategies I describe in the book, but it's also really helpful to have those people in my life that I know I can be so open about. And that's, that, I think really that's the way to have these conversations. Like mm -hmm. when I'm, and you have to trust, um, I feel like I'm getting into Brene Brown territory here, but of course you trust who you're being vulnerable with and mm -hmm. who you're having these conversations with. You want to make sure that there is a connection there and you don't want to just go spilling your guts to everyone you meet. True. But once you find those people, 
Um, if you are willing to have these conversations and to bring up your, your doubts and your anxieties and your fears, you'll be met with it's something with I guess, comfort in return and with being seen and feeling like you're not alone. Mm. Again, I'm getting into cheesy, no, <laughs> cheesy no. territory here. But. <laughs> it's all good. No, and clearly you, you've thought a lot about this, which actually brings me to your next um, and final adjective and also the, the next piece and final piece that we're going to listen to you, uh, If I Say Yes, which I, I argued is maybe uh, if I could apply, although introspective works, I, I think, pretty well with all the compositions, but I, I thought it works uh, particularly well with, with this piece. So this piece was commissioned by the University of Maryland, uh, which is your alma mater, I believe, right? Mm-hmm. So you For did your undergrad, yeah. undergraduate. And uh, I think I, I saw too, so you grew up in New Jersey, but then you went to school in Maryland and then to California. What was that like um, making that transition from where you just like, I would really want to go to these great music schools and that that was the focus? Or was it, I need to get out of New Jersey, I want to go somewhere else and, and see something else. Uh, I'd just be curious as to, you know, why you chose the schools that you did I definitely wanted to get out of New Jersey although I love I loved well I'm glad I grew up in New Jersey I didn't love everything about being there um mm-hmm. but I definitely like I I had a really lovely sorry <clears throat> drink some water <laughs> you're good I'm really glad that I had the upbringing that I did um mm-hmm. I went to a really great middle school and high school and elementary school and have a lot of great friends and all of that. But I was, I was just ready to get out of my small town and go somewhere more exciting. So, Mm -hmm. and then in terms of choosing colleges, a lot of that had to do with finances and just finding the right mix of scholarship money and a school that I felt would be a really good fit for me. Um, so weighing those two things, uh, I, Maryland gave me almost a full tuition scholarship. Um, it wasn't full tuition, but it was close. And that Sweet. was really exciting. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and then USC, I had a teaching assistantship and that came with a stipend. And also USC is amazing. Like it's so, and, and Maryland ended up being amazing too. I, when I went there as a high schooler, considering applying there, someone in the graduate or in the uh, administrative offices said, you know, if you get the kind of solid musical training you will get here, you can go anywhere you want for grad mm-hmm. school. Like you should be able to take that and just, and, and that was not anywhere you want, I guess, but, but they were like, you'll get a great musical education and then you can go somewhere else after this and take all of that with you into the next. And that was totally true. That's like why I got the teaching assistantship at USC. And I think why I ended up at USC for my master's was I had really great teachers at Maryland and also really people who encouraged me to have a junior recital jointly with someone, even though that wasn't encouraged for composers, that wasn't required. Mm -hmm. Senior recitals weren't required. I was like, I want a senior recital because I was, again, I'm a type A overachiever, (laughs) like um, like I talk about in the book as well. Mm -hmm. But... Anyway, yeah, it was just a mix of encouragement and money. That's great. No, and I'd love to have um, episode episode two just to talk strictly about the the education practicality thing, because you're totally right, because the the thought is, well, I need to go to the top conservatories or this sort of stuff, even though I will say Maryland is an amazing program, as well as, uh, you know, USC is, is, yeah, I mean, 
you know their credentials. I think most of us in the world do. Um, and so, yeah, that's that's wonderful. And so this piece, which, again, kind of ties into um, even your poetry connection, right? So so you initially started with, with family, and here you're starting with where you went to school, uh, or not starting with, but you, you were able to return back to a place where you went to school to write this um, this piece. And so, um, uh, so uh, I, I wanted to ask a couple of things about this because um, – it, if I say yes, it is a personal piece. Um, it's it's uh, represented similarly to uh, uh, some of the kind of ritualistic ideas uh, from a Stravinsky piece, I think, that you had been meditating on at the time. Um, but it was also about a, a big life decision that uh, you, you've made recently. And so uh, you are now married, which is exciting. And uh, you're a composer. And this is a piece that kind of has some commentary that comes uh, with that. So I'd love to hear just kind of... Um, because also I understand you wrote the, the text to this piece as well. So um, what your inspirations were for the text and kind of uh, how you put it together. And um, yeah, then we'll talk a little bit more about the music. Yeah, so uh, this piece, I think on one level speaks to how long it can take uh, from the start, from beginning to talk about a commission to actually having the commission happen and then having the premiere happen. I, I got this commission and we started talk Ed McClary, who commissioned it, uh, the conductor of the uh, University of Maryland uh, Chamber Ensemble, Chamber Singers. Um, we started talking about this piece before I'd gotten engaged. And then I wrote this poem about that time when you, you, you're pretty sure that your relationship is going to evolve to that step. Mm-hmm. Um, so I wrote the poem before I got engaged and then I got engaged, and I wrote the piece. And then before the premiere, I got married. So which yeah. it was a, like a two-year span there. It's a big stretch time. there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, but when Ed first approached me about this piece, uh, it was to pair with Stravinsky's Lenos, Le which I always, or Lenos, Le I always feel like I'm saying the title wrong. This is, we were speaking before we hit mm-hmm. record about being scared we're saying things wrong. Yeah, nervous of pronunciation. Yes. I'm sure I'm saying it wrong. But anyway, um, Mm -hmm. this piece that's, if you don't, if you don't know it, is about a wedding and this very ritualistic um, approach to a wedding and there's a matchmaker and and the bride and groom and all these traditions. And so instead of finding a poem, instead of going to my network of poets and asking for wedding-themed poetry, um, I... I do have, an, from Maryland, I have a double degree, and one of those degrees is, well, one is in music composition, but the other is in creative writing, or in English, with a focus on writing poetry, which I did in college and then stopped doing for about five-ish years, and then got back back into um, for writing my own texts, which mm-hmm. is something I've been doing more of, and something I get better at the more I do it, which it's so helpful, I think, when you're, this a little bit of a tangent, but when you're good at one thing or when you've made something your your job or your even your long-term hobby it's really hard to go and start something else on the side because you at least for me i think i'm going to be as good at that thing as i am at the other thing that i've devoted my life to and that's not always true i was a little rusty at getting back into writing my own texts but i'm i'm proud of this poem um i think because i spent so much time writing the poem as well. Mm-hmm. I wanted to get it right. I, I sent it to Ed. He had some notes on it. Um, there used to be, I think maybe I mentioned I have cats. There used to be a cat in this 
or two cats, one cat in this poem, and Ed doesn't like cats, and I, I took the cat out. And <laughs> That's awesome. It's funny. Um, That's hilarious. I yeah. love it. I love it. That's so cool. Um, yeah. That's great. And so, and yeah, and I love this piece, and I like... Um, the the instrumentation of it as well which is it's not just um i say just voice it's voices uh but also with the string quartet and um piano and percussion um and specifically it opens with this this really kind of prominent marimba part and i was just curious um what drew you to the the instrumentation to go with uh this piece as well so the stravinsky piece i had up to the instrumentation of the stravinsky piece which famously has four pianos and percussion mm-hmm. and i did not <laughs> <laughs> I was not going to write a piece for even two pianos because no. I think other the logis- yeah, the logistics of that would get uh, get hairy. That's no. for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but I did. I did want to nod to that by at the very least having piano and percussion Sweet. in this piece, and then I had the option of adding string quartet. Um, had the mm-hmm. option of adding string quartet and took it because uh, I don't know. I I love the sound of string quartet. I love. I mean, I love all of these instruments. I love yeah. the few instruments I don't love, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I wanted, um, I think this interplay between warmth and uh, thinking about love and thinking about engagement and marriage mm-hmm. um, in the poem and then in the music itself and even in the instrumentation, I wanted this uh, tension between sort of like mushier, things we associate with love and romance mm-hmm. and then the practicalities of it, the day to day, um, you know, the fact that you do like, even when you're in love, even when you're engaged, you're still maybe having petty arguments with your spouse to be, mm-hmm. um, yes. or, or having doubts or just, I mean, I, I know in thinking about getting married, I like the word wife still feels a little strange to me. I think because it has all these weird, like it, it, makes me think of like a 50s housewife which yeah. i don't want to be that's funny. uh and i'm not but and and like mm-hmm. the word husband i say more often because i'm i'm the one saying it describing they they require partner. like a snooty british accent when you do this it's my husband right or yes this is my but... wife this is my wife yeah yeah but it's Anyways. weird hearing him say i like i say this to him it's weird him, hearing him say wife mm-hmm. because it's I, like I'm used to the word. I'm used to what I control. I'm used to what I say. About was it weirder, husband him? and wife, or fiance? Was because I feel like you know, like I've got a little French heritage, so it was like not so bad. But I don't, <laughs> I, I don't like, know. Yeah, I fiance, like fiance was okay. Yeah, okay, cool. I don't know. I feel like that's a that's a fleeting time too. Like we yeah. were, I think we we're engaged for a year and a half. But you, you have to enjoy mm-hmm. it. You have to embrace it when you're there. Okay. It's so temporary. I yeah, I know. I love it. It's fantastic. Well, that's great. And I, I was wondering if that the instrumentation was was that nod to, to Stravinsky and, and and having that that percussion, um, especially uh, featured uh, throughout it. I am excited uh, to now share this next piece. If I say yes, um, if if uh, you had anything else you wanted to add about the program note or this performance of, of this piece, um, what what would that be? Uh, well, my favorite section, I think, is the last third of the piece. I I don't know if you have this happen. You, you probably have sections of your music that you like the best, right, in any given piece. I don't, maybe I should phrase that as a question. Do you have, yeah, when I you think, write a piece, yeah, two I, moments? I think every, t- every once in a while, I, you know, it's uh, I'm letting my, my self-doubt 
uh, show here a little bit. But yes, yeah, no, there there are moments where where I'm I'm certainly. I, I'm, I'm excited to arrive at that point. And so it sounds like um, for you, the, the back half of the piece is kind of aiming in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it feels like everything's sort of pointing towards, towards that moment. And so for me, my favorite moment is the, so there's some, I should back up, but let's learn to ask only when the answer could be yes, will be yes. So there is some small chance of it staying yes, as long as we both shall live. That was my, like my favorite part of the poem. Mm. And then the last stanza is like my favorite part to write as the words. And then also my favorite part to write as the music, which I don't think is an accident or a mistake. Um, wow. But that was just, it was fun for me to, in setting this piece, to reach the words that I liked the most that I had written in the poem. And then they're still my favorite to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and they, at the premiere, that, yeah, I just, I think that, I don't know, that's the best moment of this piece. But Very cool. Well, yeah. I, I say we dive in and let's take a listen to, uh, this is If I Say Yes. Thank you. 
So the last big question, and we ask um, all of our composers to come in, and um, it's kind of a bigger one, but how did you come to music, and how did you know that you were going to do music for the rest of your life? So I, the answer I always give, and if anyone's listened to any other interview I have given, I it's good you have It's good you stayed on book. That's good, yeah. <laughs> but I, I was one of those piano students who played what I was supposed to be practicing, not often enough, did not practice enough, but would would play what I was supposed to be playing and then just detour into composing. Um, I think as early as seven, even though what I was writing was terrible, um, I, I was still improvising and starting to write things down, little ideas that I had, um, and was lucky enough to have uh, piano multiple piano teachers who encouraged me to keep writing these things down um my actually normally i don't i feel like i'm just having this realization now but my first piano teacher i think there was like a big emphasis on theory which isn't always the case in in piano studies and it should be i think just on really basic theory but yeah i'm grateful now for that um and I just, composing and hearing a piece, well, it's it's two things. It's the process of writing a piece. When I'm maybe a third of the way through writing something or maybe a couple days in, not right at the beginning where it's a little bit of a challenge sometimes to start, but in that, that space where the piece could be anything and it's just flowing, like that. I, that's such a good feeling. That's like... I just, I feel like I've been chasing that and the feeling of having a premiere and that moment where not, not the first rehearsal, but, but the first time that you come in, hopefully late enough in the process that a group knows your piece well, but again, that, that clay is still moldable and uh, can Mm -hmm. still be shaped. That first moment of hearing that piece exist out loud, um, that's, I've been chasing that since I was... I think I was 16 when I first heard a chorus sing one of my pieces. And of course I'd played things like at the piano, um, but to hear live musicians doing the thing I've written, it just, it feels really great. And I realized pretty early on that that was what I wanted to do. Like if I could get paid to do that, that that was what I was going to do. Like I was mm-hmm. just going to pursue getting paid to do the thing I wanted to do. Yeah. My entire life and I have and I'm I'm still doing it and will continue doing that I think for as long as I live. That's amazing. Well, thank you so much, Dale, for uh, giving us your time and sharing your music with us. Um, if uh, there's any other way we can connect with you, um, I believe we'll, we'll have your, uh, your website linked uh, here. Anything else you want to promote or anything coming up uh, that we can share? Uh, I think everything ends up on my website eventually if you want Which to reach is, me. Yes, daletrumbore.com, right? Yes. Yes. And okay. then I have a newsletter that I have not sent in many months because of the pandemic just makes it harder to do everything. But I, I will eventually resume sending that once a month. And that much like how the website has sketches of my work, that newsletter is supposed to be an insight into the creative process and the, um, the early stages of things. Seeing texts I'm setting before they become a piece when they're just a poem, 
So that's all all on my website as well. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much again, uh, Dale Trumbor, for joining us. And thank you all for listening uh, to this episode of Lexical Tones. Thanks for listening. As always, if you want to find out more about Adjective New Music or Lexical Tones, please go to our website, www.adjectivenewmusic.com.